Nitrogenous and carbonaceous. Welcome back to the Eco-Christian Podcast, where we are exploring what it means to be Christian on planet Earth. I'm your host, Caleb Cray Haynes, and y'all, your composting dreams are coming true. I'm sitting down with my friend, Ryan Fasani, and if you've been waiting for someone to help unmuddy the waters of composting for you, this is it. Or if you really don't even know what the word compost is or what it has to do with your life, this one's for you too. Basically, if you are a living and eating being, you gotta get in on this. Because the only reason you and I are alive today is because of God's beautiful gift named compost. It's the holy ingredient baked within creation that keeps it all going. This is the tangible spiritual practice that I believe every human is designed to be involved in. So on the heels of a long holiday weekend, as those leftovers are marinating in the fridge and scraps of pie are lying on the counter, let's dive into this conversation. Let's get carbonaceous. All right, friends, today is the day you get to hear from the one and only Ryan Fasani. Welcome, Ryan. How's it going, man? Oh, it's going well, man. Life is good. Kids are keeping me busy. Imagination is wild. Um, curiosity is at an all-time high. But hey, I appreciate you having me, Caleb. It's always good to cut out a little bit of time and connect and see where life is taking us and where the spirit moves. So thanks for having me. Oh, man, my pleasure. I love this so much. So Ryan Fasani, uh, along with just being a generally amazing person and having a really soothing voice that you'll get to experience throughout this episode, uh, operates kind of a small home slash farmstead in Washington State. He's a father and husband. He does creative pastoral work, uh, has written numerous books on faith and grief and changing everything. <laughs> Uh, and which I'm going to link a bunch of this stuff in the show notes. So uh, check that out. Uh, Ryan, uh, you know, works with me and a few others actually on a five week small group study on creation care that came out earlier this year called Keeping Creation. We'll have to link that as well. But yeah, so glad you're here, man. I was trying to think, uh, did we meet circa like 2009? Some, somewhere in there, I think it was like, it's been a hot minute ago. I think that's back when I had a full head of hair. So it must have yeah. been about early 2000s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Things were different colors and more of it. Yeah, yeah, generally. Yeah. Oh, my word. Yeah, Ryan was at that point doing uh, pastoring and doing poverty alleviation work in East Nashville. And, of course, doing the Lord's work of urban gardening as always. So, And my wife and I were fresh off the church planter boat. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, man. Thanks for thanks for being on here. I'd love to, of all the things we could get into today, you know, I'm going to offer a disclaimer that nothing is actually off the table here. <laughs> but the, the main reason I wanted to talk with Ryan today is to talk about God's gift to us called composting. Um, but before we board that train, 
Ryan, I'd love for our listeners to get to know you a bit more and we can do the long or the short version or whatever you want to tell, but a bit about your own eco-Christian journey and how you got where you are today in Washington, hands in the soil, words in our hearts, all the things. And uh, yeah, tell us about you. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I studied theology, philosophy and sociology (laughs) Which, as that comes out, I, it sounds almost ridiculous. But I, I studied uh, in in the in the humanities and with an emphasis in biblical studies and theology in undergraduate. And and I'll tell you what, um, I was fortunate to be given the type of education that taught me um, to not let any rock unturned. Well, it just so happened that my first semester in studying re- in the religion department at Point Loma. Um, one of my professors made a comment to the effect of does the uh, in the form of a question um does the abundant life include human bodies and that's as that's as i remember it but the way i chewed on that for that semester and then of course like as it trajected up into the next 20 years of uh, lived life and ministry was um, do our bodies matter as it relates to God's work of redemption? Do the concrete realities, and I, and I don't mean like bodies in some sort of like existential sense. I mean, like, does the largest organ known as our skin or does my small intestine or does my complexion or does my the ableness of my joints or does my lower back pain matter in terms of being redeemed and healed and experiencing the work of God in, in the world? And that happened to co-align co- um, co- with a, a journey that I was on to experience health. Um, I remember meeting my now spouse um, of many years then. And what intrigued me most about her, apart from being an absolutely phenomenal volleyball player, was that she, of all people in college, like um, was like hyper concerned about discovering the practice of dieting in a sustainable way. So instead of like weight management or something like that, or some faddish interest in, you know, the latest soy product or something like that, like how can one eat would be something she would ask herself, how can one eat that would serve their body well for the next 75 years. And that was so precocious. It was beyond her years and it captivated me, right? And it happened to be when my journey started to figure out what it meant to actually be healthy apart from fad diets. I think back then Atkins was like the big thing or something, Um, but beyond fad diets. And anyhow, so we met and sort of linked arms and ultimately life together and have been asking this question, how do we eat well um, our entire adult life? Now, just as a reminder, I was asked this theological question about if our bodies mattered in God's work of redemption. And at the same time, I was asking my own like practical questions of how do I eat well? Well, instead of telling you the, you know, the 30 minute version, the two minute version is it didn't take long for two things to happen. One, we realized that eating well meant you um, continue to peel back the processes of food consumption. You eventually get to cooking and preparation. You get to preservation and fermentation. Well, ultimately, you get back to where where food is sourced from. 
And it, it doesn't take a wild imagination to realize, well, that what matters as it relates to sourcing food is both distance it travels. We all are thankful to the local food movement because it highlights the importance of local economies and food not traveling thousands of miles to get to your dinner plate. But it also um, reminds us that soil matters in the, in the health of the food we consume. Right. If you keep peeling back this onion, as it were, you get to where food is grown, the water and the soil. So, two, again, two things this journey took us on. It took us to the soil. So our questions about diet took us to the soil. And my theological questions about redemption also took me to the questions of of, uh, of creation care, soil management, animal husbandry, right? Because as I began to sort of practice and, and embody my emphatic yes to my teacher that indeed bodies matter in the work of redemption, I realized, oh, then that means nothing can be left on the table as it relates to renewal of all things. And so what are the most fundamental components of bodies? Well, it's sort of our natural elements, air, water, etc. But it's also how we relate to creation in its material sense, right? The natural resources around us, the animals that we befriend and care for, the trees that we walk by here and there and everywhere on our daily commutes. Like, and so at the same time, right, I found myself in the soil as the place from which I needed to d- discover and learn for my body's health. And I ended up at, in the soil again in a theological sense as where like, like the most fundamental work of redemption happened, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's no coincidence then that I became literally and unapolog- unapologetically like obsessed with dirt, right? like mm-hmm. with soil, with the creation of soil, the management of soil nu- nutrients and fertility, right? And that... I guess I, I, it probably goes without saying that, like, you know, where we are on our farm currently um, is entirely like the result of the answers of these two questions that was like in my early 20s about health and about redemption. And it's still, you know, mo- more indirectly, probably with my children, it's still, but still explicit and directly for me and my wife, like, it is like the impetus for almost everything that we do on our farm is to continue to answer yes to the first question and to continue to learn about soil as the source of our embodied health to the second question. Anyhow, mm-hmm. so there's there's a, in, like in a nutshell, like why I nerd out about soil and why it yeah. matters, like just in like a, like my own kind of like a theological journey um, and discovery, personal discovery of health. Mm, I Wow. So much, so much there. I really appreciate you sharing that because, uh, I mean, <laughs> to just jump right into it. Jeez, uh, I mean, composting, composting to me, or, or soil, I guess, to talk about, you know, this, this like divine, sacred blueprint that's interwoven within the whole thing, and, um, you know, and I think it's, it's a, it's really, really important and key. I think for us to talk more about and to literally let it come under our fingernails more as the people mm-hmm. of God to, you know, remind ourselves of that, that this, that we are part of this creation and that 
the resurrection and the reconciliation of all things and and all this is a is something that is bodily occurring not disembodied um that is in flesh and so yeah i really appreciate you framing it that way because that's just um yeah that's that's everything that's kind of the that's kind of the recipe i guess um i'm trying to think it's uh, norman Wiersbe writes about this in the sacred life and talking about how um you know we often we often think that uh and maybe i've talked about this on here before i can't remember but like like interstellar or something like we're gonna go and be on another planet and as if we could just plop up and and plop down somewhere else uh, without thinking what the sort of ramifications are or what that relationship is between us and the soil and that our bodies are are made up uh almost entirely of the exact same stuff that the rest of creation is made up of right like nitrogen and oxygen and hydrogen and all these things um and so we are you know we say we're earthlings but we really are earthlings and i think that really does like god created it this way like that's not like yeah you know like that's not that's not something that we did uh you know that's part of god's story and what god is up to in in weaving all this together anyway yeah so i i love that you know i think that um thinking about composting and it, it reminds us that you know this is the way god created creation so that everything becomes food for everything and uh like everything from leaves to our bodies are meant to be inside this circular vision of creation and that something is born and it dies and it then becomes the necessary ingredients for the rebirth uh or the new thing uh so it's just kind of a moment to pause like the big wow uh of of that i think so yeah i think kind of like you're saying like we shouldn't be surprised that our very salvation right that that we are saved through this sort of life death and resurrection and that this is our it's a compost story i guess it's a soil story yeah um, I, I i like that the 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 life death resurrection the the decomposition renewal rebirth renewal or you know the 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 planting the growing the dying like they're they're we think in terms of like these linear trajectories, I don't know, because in kindergarten we write, you know, one to 75 years and do these like linear timelines or something. And in the West in particular, we think of time as this linear thing, but like the redemptive story as even if just as metaphor, like perfectly overlays like the ecological story of renewal. And it's very circular. Right. And, and, and I, I would like to think, um, you know, this is something that's singularly unique about the, you know, the Christian, you know, sort of worldview or something like that. And I, and I don't want to like steal anything from the beautiful like um, death and resurrection of Jesus. But like, I'm pretty sure every major world religion has two things. One, a type of renewal process that requires the crucible of dying right? The decomposing, which gives birth to renewal, which is overlaid with this sort of template of compost uh, template. But two, and more importantly, um, to be to be like really direct, connects human creation with the soil, right? And some, and, and some like really like, uh, like, uh, 
really concrete way. There's a there's a creation narrative, and in the Hebrews in the Hebrew story, it's like is like it's as direct as like naming two words that resemble each other in Adam and Adama, which you've explored that many times before. But like, but in multiple religious traditions, like there is, it's not a detangling of humanity from the dirt. It's not, you know, it's not a, a cleansing of humanity from its sort of soil and filth. It's actually a wedding of these two things because and in, in pre-industrial societies, like it was just so obvious that we were the like the constructor of components of a life well lived and vitality and vivaciousness was this close life of abundant relationship with land, right? And like you saw your animals get sickly when they stood in too much undecomposed manure for too long through a long wet winter, or vice versa, when we didn't cover our soil through the winter and the rains washed all the nutrients away, we knew that, you know, our gourds were gonna re reproduce smaller the following season, right? And those seeds were potentially wouldn't propagate at the same, like we knew life, including our very well-being, was the substance of the soil, right? Mm. So of course, every religious tradition at some fundamental level is gonna connect those. Well, for us, who believe in a monotheistic, you know, creative being, well, of course, like bringing the breath of Ruah together with the beauty and the possibility and the potential and the multi-billion, you know, community of the microbiome and putting that breath, like invigorating with the very divine breath, this already communal substance of dirt into something called human or hummus. Like, of course, like it makes so much sense, you know, I, now that we know a thing or two, uh, you know, about it, but it always made sense, which is the beautiful thing to me. It always made sense to, you know, pre-modern societies. Of course, that's the way God works. Of course, that's the way the divine redeems, right? Very closely with the work of soil, right? So mm. it's cri a critical reminder for us that, you know, in our urbanized realities, like, are always washing our hands and detached from the earth, but mm. not so much for yeah. my farmer friends. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, man, so much, so much there. I really thinking about this image and I usually return to it every uh, season of resurrection. And when, uh, you know, Mary, they're coming to the tomb early in the morning and they mistake Jesus for the gardener, you know, and it makes you think like, what, what was he up to? Like, was, is that because he was like digging around out there, you know, like mm -hmm. what, what was happening? And, and I don't think, you know, I wonder if, um, uh, that's not a mistake. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, he is the gardener, but I love this, what you're saying about, it's not a cleansing of, but it's a, it's a marriage of, and man, that, wow, you really named that really well. Mm -hmm. Um, that's really great. So uh, let's try to quote unquote ground some of this conversation. Uh, sure. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about, I think about the holidays uh, are, are coming upon us and uh, and a big agenda over, especially this next month or two, uh, right. Is obviously food. Uh, we're all, we're all doing a bit more of eating uh, right now. And, and I think it's a great time to talk about compost uh, and especially as food waste is such a huge problem today. Um, we're on the heels of, right, this harvest season, uh, at least in our area of the world, 
which is which is a busy time for composting. And so uh, I wanted, that's why I wanted one of our first episodes really to, to talk about composting because we just don't realize, I think like we're talking about how poor uh, this conversation really is to our lives and to our planet and to all of existence. And even in, I believe, kind of like we're talking about understanding this sort of divine God's fingerprint on the whole of creation. And so I wonder, Ryan, if you could maybe offer for those of us who are just like on the base level of the parking garage here, mm -hmm. <laughs> like we're, we're just pulling in and looking for a spot, uh, you know, maybe a maybe a base level description of compost. Uh, like what is compost? What is composting? And why is this conversation one that that uh, or, or why is this work that you're you're doing uh maybe we could just start there in the in the bottom level and then kind of work toward um what it what it means to practice this yeah the the uh the beautiful thing about this particular episode is that none of us are brilliant and so i should very easily <laughs> well maybe the host yes. but no, no, most, no. most of your fantastic. readers and your guests aren't so my the way i I'm a practitioner first, right? So let me call me out if this can't translate to a fifth grader, right? This one of the smartest people I've ever known who actually is, you know, a, uh, a microbiologist and actually a computational biologist told me if you can't explain it to a fifth grader, you don't really understand it. So here we go. Call me out on my lack of understanding, right? So compost is really simple regardless of what Google wants to tell you, right? Because you can get into the weeds there and Google and it's like, I'll never, I can't do this. Like it's too right. complicated and I, I'll never be, right. So compost is really simple, right? It's organic material. It's, it's, it's being patient with organic material, mm -hmm. right? Like all the components of decom the decomposition process happen already in nature. Literally getting out of the way is the most important step you have to do. Okay, now, there are variables we can change to speed the process up. All composting is doing is taking the gift of the balance of nature and speeding it up that we might utilize its end results sooner. It's not working against nature. It's not deviating. It's not imbalancing it. It's not throwing a wrench in it. All it's doing is encouraging nature to speed up, sometimes 500x, but still just speed up to do what it naturally does. Now, how do we do that is the question. And this is where if it doesn't make sense to a child, then, does, then I don't clearly understand it. Again, it's a really simple answer, right? Because... When you don't, when you realize you can't honestly can hardly make a mistake, then you have the courage to at least try. That's ingredient number one, to try it. And that looks like in the decomposing or the composting process, that literally just looks like collecting your organic material, right? And there's a difference between all human waste and human organic waste, okay? And just to differentiate that, basically, if you could put it out outside and bury it in the ground and come back and it looks the same next year, it's not organic waste, right? Mm -hmm. But that leaves a lot of things. For example, at my house, we have three different composting bins. One goes to the chickens, and one, go one goes to the compost pile, right? And one, and one, goes, one goes directly into the ground, some things we just bury into the ground. And the reason I tell you that is because the one in the middle, the one that goes into the compost pile, looks unlike probably what you're imagining. Most people are probably thinking, what can really get, 
I mean, really what can go in there? Let me Google that. Can it be, does it have to be green? Does it have to be brown? Can it be this? Can I throw in a core? What about lemon peels? That's, that's citric acid. Is that going to be good for the answer is almost always yes. Okay. That middle bucket of ours has junk mail, right? Has the corners of, of uh, construction paper for my children, for my girl's art project, right? It has all kinds of things that yeah. you can, I mean, you look in there, it's all the, all the traditional things you think it's got the ends of dirt of, of, you know, bread that sat out a baguette that sat out for two weeks and is like a stone. It's got all, a little bit of food from the dog's bin that spilled underneath the table that got swept up at night when we were cleaning the kitchen. That'll go in there. Literally almost everything can go in there. Okay. Mm. When, just to be clear, when you get online, it's going to tell you a lot of things that can't get over there. Stop it. If it goes, <laughs> if it, okay. If it's, or, or if it's organic waste, it generally can go in there. Okay. So here's the easiest way to do it. Okay. If you, again, hear me out because it's this simple. If you can bury it in the ground, and it looks different the next year. It's it's within the realm of organic compostable material. It can go into a bin and eventually become beautiful hummus, which is basically compost that's done all of the work of nature and it's completed. It's a stabilized, beautiful soil. When you picture a hand with black dirt in it that looks really tilthy and crumbly, that's hummus. That's our goal. Okay. But let's complicate it just a little bit. Because you're probably imagining Ryan has like heaps of trash at his house, which is partially true. But, okay. <laughs> Generally, in the composting practitioner world, it breaks into two parts, greens and browns. Okay. Nitrogenous, big buzzword, and carbonaceous. The best way to think of it is in terms of colors. Green, which is wet and fresh brown which is dry and brown and old okay if those are partnered together in similar weight you have just okay. created the perfect environment to speed up nature 500 times okay so let me back up anything green okay apple core uh let's any skinnings off of uh, off your vegetables a rotten pumpkin that you left out from halloween right anything green slimy uh cut leaves uh fresh leaves that just fell grass clippings anything that's green slimy wet gooey anything like that can fit there okay we call those green they're nitrogenous which just is a like kind of a nerdy way of saying they've got lots of nitrogen right and then there's brown carbonaceous which is carbon Literally everything can go in there that looks like and resembles something dry and woody and like it would be hard to chew on for a while. Straws and papers and dried leaves, right? Mm. Um, can I just say that word carbonaceous? Because that, I, I'm, I'm I've never used this word and I'm already in love like yeah there you go. i mean it's it's going somewhere right. so right. so so right so it's it's that simple so green slimy fresh straight off of the counter after cooking dinner dry old crispy gnarly to chew on twigs leaves right like you raked up from outside um, carbonaceous carbonaceous right 
Those, if we can call, if we can put those together in an environment where they are equa weighted, similar weight, we have basically created a like a, a haven for microorganisms to thrive. And the reason is, is you are fueling the billions of microbes that that activate, that thrive at different temperatures. I don't, we could totally like dive in there further and why that's th the case, but I'll just use one little kind of dorky word, okay? There's thermophilic, heat-loving, basically, microbes that when you do what I just said, let's just say, let's just say you had a half a pound of uh, skinnings from your potatoes and maybe you made vegetable soup, half a pound of the, the waste from that. And you had a half a pound of shredded paper and a hundred leaves that blew onto your front porch. And you mix those together, right? There would be a, th what would thrive at first would be a whole series of, fun uh, of funguses that would, would thrive and bacteria. And as, it, and as they consumed, they chemically consume. Uh, and when, when they process that organic material, they put off heat. And as it heats up slightly, you get, you get the most rapid growth with what with the word I use, thermophilic microbes, right? And that's this critical space where you have just partnered with nature to speed it up hundreds of times because they'll just take off and you can almost come back every day and it'll look different. But the point is they thrive in an environment where those two sets of, then it's oversimplified and too reductionist, but too reductionistic. But when those are balanced in weight, they thrive. And that, and that is the fastest breakdown process by those microbes. Okay. Mm. And now literally it's your job is to get out of the way at that point. Okay. Now. I'm going to back all the way up. So, so that's like, that's fifth grade entry into compost, right? Wet, gooey, fresh stuff, dry. There, here's your word again, carbonaceous, you know, yeah. fibery stuff, put them together in equal amounts of weight, set them outside, let them sit. Like that's compost 101. Almost anything can go in there. Um, okay. And if your question is, can this go in there? Mm. It probably can, and we'll get to that later. Um, the only thing I would discourage from going from going in there, um, and it's not because it doesn't decompose, because I can bury an entire carcass, honestly, in my compost pile, and it'll be gone the following year. But animal products, which themselves are organic matter, and in okay. nature decompose. But the only reason I would discourage animal products from the compost bin is just that it attracts flies and people that that's a, enough of a discouragement for people, especially if you live okay. in an urban environment. Right. But yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Incor we incorporate that in ours too. We like all kinds of animal products. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, real, real quick. Cause I don't lose yep. it. So you said it, it can increase 500 times, like by just mm -hmm. like helping it along this way. Like that's, yeah. that's incredible. Uh, what I'm hearing is that it seems like I think maybe one of the barriers that you're addressing to composting for so many people is that like there's it's there's almost t there's almost too too there's too too many YouTube videos out there there's too much information but we're all, we're just kind of like overthinking it as well 
uh, like in that yes. way of overthinking it. Um, with that, with that in, in mind, a uh, couple quick questions. What's in your th- so? What's in your third? What are you burying? Like chickens, compost. What are you burying? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there's like burying in my compost bin. No, you said you had three piles. You said there, okay. You had oh, your yeah, chicken. Sorry. Yeah. We have um, two compost toilets on our property. Okay. And I am fully, I'm comfortable. And I think it's verified with the data that's out there that a uh, human manure or human waste that is composted properly and, and internationally it happens all over the place, but, um, but it's against the law in the United States, but to, to uh, sell commercial agri- agricultural products that have been fertilized with human manure or human compost. But right. The data suggests that it's perfectly safe if it sees through the system of decomposition. But but basically, in in short form, a human uh, hu- um, composting toilet is basically human waste and very carbonaceous material. So like pine shavings, right? And don't I'm like I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you, but both of our one of ours is actually indoor and. Off, puts off zero odor like it doesn't smell whatsoever like it actually has a sweet almost um pine fl- smell like odor to it so anyhow so what are you if guys you can eating? Ima- wow yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> awesome. lots of Doug- lots of douglas for essential oils no just joking yeah. um so that that's just layered in a in a bucket basically and that we actually bury directly into the ground um just to keep it distinct from the compost that we finish off on site and then use on our market garden. Mm. Right. So just so we don't want, we want to be able to tell people that none of this goes into the food we eat. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I was just curious. That's that's actually really helpful. I mean, uh, next that's next level. Ryan Fasani, everyone (laughs) like (laughs) sit at his feet. Um, so other other thing kind of kind of related, but similar to what you're saying, like at the proportions thing. And that's one of the things that I feel like has gotten in the way of like, can I can I do this? Am I doing it wrong? Am I doing it right? The like percentage between brown and the proper percentage of green and and, and all of that. And I and I realize that can be a big part that we overthink. Uh, you know, I think about a more urban context too. like I get a lot of green uh, just from like life in my house in a day but i'd i'd get less brown does that make sense i've got less brown uh access you know and i have quite a bit of access i guess because of the kind of backyard i have but i'm especially more people who are wanting to do more compost posting have a lot of the green not much brown like how problematic is that would you say well well i I cut my teeth in agriculture in an urban context. And so I had to, ans- had to answer all these questions practically. And I was doing it more than just in a single family unit, like we were doing it on neighborhood scale. So we really had to answer it, answer it quickly because we were getting drop-offs of greens technically and didn't know where to get browns. Well, we solved that immediately with shredded paper, right? And so we partnered with a couple local church bodies and we harvested, if you will, their shredded paper. And it was a perfect complement to all the greens that we were getting. Um, another, another way to get that, and this is like, there's always like entry, entry level stuff. And then like, if you want to like really kind of push the envelope a little bit, um, the way we do that on our farm is that we separate in our, not our composting toilets in our regular toilets that goes to our septic system. We still separate brown from non-brown 
or soiled from non-soiled toilet paper, right? So every one of our toilets has a paper bag next to it. Obviously, if you wipe with the toilet paper, it goes down into the septic tank. Well, maybe that's not obvious for me, but it goes down into the septic tank. If you just blow your nose or you're using it not for wiping, it goes into this brown paper bag. And weekly, we have one of my kids is our waste management person. He's our compost kid, literally. Um, and it's a little enterprise that he has. He sells the compost. But anyhow, he takes that and he uses that as a brown contribution to the compost system. And so it's all just, so we have shredded paper, which was like junk mail and, and stuff that I've already mentioned. And then, then all of the toilet paper used that's not been soiled with human stool is also goes into our compost. And that, and, and that may be pushing it a little too far for some people. So the short answer is just shredded paper. I mean, who doesn't get junk mail and can't stand it, right? Tear off the little bit of plastic from that little window and the rest of it's brown. Hmm. So, uh, poking a little further in. So say you just have mostly just all greens and that's just what it is. And it's in your compost bin. Like, is that still going to compost just over a longer period of time? It, it will, it will certainly compost um, over a certain period of time, but the problem is, and this is one of the biggest indicators of a compost troubleshooting, or this is one of the best compost troubleshooters. And it's not some probe you buy that's, you know, elaborate and tells you the pH or it's not some video series you got to you know pay for that's going to tell you how to meticulously analyze your compost. It's it's the gifts of senses that we already have. If your compost stinks, something's off and it's generally that you have too many greens in air quotes. We're just using greens. And the reason that is, is because the greens just picture this like we've all thrown ingredients together, some that are wet, some are that are that are dry. If there's too much wet ingredient, it mats together. Anybody that's emptied a bag of grass clippings on the ground and come back three months later, what is it? It's like a massive 20 pound pancake of half like decomposed grass, like, thing, you yeah. know, like mat, yeah. right? What happens when there's too many greens is that it becomes an anaerobic environment. Now the question, for anybody listening to this, ask yourself, like, if what makes the magic of compost work is all of the microbiology, all of the living forms, all the living microbes, bacteria, fungal, fungus, that are consuming and transforming this organic matter into soil, essentially. Well, do those living organisms, those living organisms have all the food they want, but they also need to breathe just like most living organisms, right? And as soon as you put too much moisture in an environment and you mat it down tight, right? You've just eliminated the ability for anything at the center of that mass to breathe, right? And what you're smelling is the acidification um, and the dying of, of a balanced community of organisms, Right. So that's the only problem. It'll eventually decompose because there are some organisms that can thrive in anaerobic environments. Right. A septic system is a perfect example. Right. But and one that you want to speed up to see to the completion in a year of black hummus or soil, you're going to want to keep use your nose. Your nose is the best indicator of problem. Right. Yeah. I man, that is like so helpful to hear because what you know, I've talked to a lot of people about composting and and one of the big the big um you know pushbacks is like 
they think it's going to be really smelly or they think there's going to be a lot of like uh creatures uh you know and so mm -hmm. and and to hear you say look there are like really easy ways to like mm -hmm. make it not that i think is really helpful um yeah. but you're also sort of raising another level down which maybe we should have addressed already to say why is it important to practice composting like what does it mm -hmm. do for us and do for the world or what does it not do yeah. um you know um so before uh before i got on here i wanted to see if there was some updated information but this is a little dated but i i, I got onto the epa and they were saying um in 2019 66.2 million tons of wasted food were generated in the food retail food service and residential sectors in the us and only like five percent of that food was composted and then it goes on to say that in the us food is the single most common material that's sent to landfills comprising of 24 percent and that's just municipal solid waste and so that's you know you get you you add in yard trimmings and wood and paper and cardboard and stuff like that and then it goes up to over 50 percent uh wow. and and which is huge but still there's sort of like this why and i don't think that a lot of people realize that when when food and other organic material goes into a landfill where it can't properly decompose like and it doesn't have oxygen which is kind of what you're going to getting at there then it starts to actually generate methane right yeah. which is a really potent greenhouse gas uh mm -hmm. and and they're saying like just in 2021 it was like 14 percent of all methane emissions were just from like the food in our landfills which was crazy to me like that's that's huge yeah yeah i've, I've heard the problem in two ways one is and it's it's hard it's a little esoteric to think in terms of gases that we don't normally encounter they're they're measurable problems right like this stuff is potent and high you know when you're talking millions of pounds sort of trapped in anaerobic environments like you can't even walk within a mile without like getting this horribly upsetting aroma i've smelled it but secondarily um and i think this one is a little bit easier to grasp if i threw you know, five pounds of all my vegetable trimmings from my huge Thanksgiving minestrone soup or whatever, right, um, into a pit and I buried it. Like, we, we know what happens. Within 18 months, I could dig in that pit and it literally would be indistinguishable from the dirt around it. What if I threw into that pit all of my plastic forks, and three trash bags and a dirty tire that I found on the side of the road and an old t-shirt, you know, polyester t-shirt, right? Like all of a sudden I've created an unusable, uninhabitable environment for most life forms, right? I've not only discouraged the usability of the organic material, I've encouraged this, um, this preserved intact waste block Right. So when you talk about millions and billions of pounds, it's not only the, the noxious gases that that are emitted that are highly toxic and, and and terrible for the environment. It's also become all of that organic matter becomes unusable. And, and in an immediate sense, like to the environment, like the surrounding environment, but also in the like practical sense, meaning like I can't I can't use it. Right? Like we can't use it. 
all it takes is a simple, I mean, it takes a lot, but in simple terms, if we separate out those two different classes of waste, then we can, then we can address both problems at once, right? Mm -hmm. Now we can, now we can sort of fine tune a process that has a nice balanced decomposition, right? So we don't have off put these methane and various other gases. Um, But then it's also in a usable form, right? So one step, solves two massive problems in terms of waste management. Yeah. Wow. That's man. That's, that's it really well. I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the guy who like, when I go, when I go from my family's house or my friend's house, like they know, like I'm kind of like creeping in their trash a little bit, you know, it's just kind of my thing at this point with, you know, all the, all the garbage theology stuff and everything. So, you know, I'm just like, I'm just like that guy. And so, you know, when I see people throwing away food scraps, honestly, I'm, I'm just like dying inside and that's going to sound a little judgy. I know. And I'm probably a little eco pretentious or something, (laughs) but it's just, you know, I'm just like, I'm just like checking it out. Uh, But, but it's, it's not just knowing what these food scraps could become or will become, you know, it's also knowing that uh, they, they won't get to be those important ingredients for our ecosystems. They won't get their chance to do their part and to compost and to become food for the next thing. And so, uh yeah so it it may it may sound like snarky thing to do but i think it's like you know like uh let's let's help each other out there and and kind of talk about this more but um you know i think about um part of the thing is is how far we have become uh removed from this natural process of decay that that we were seamlessly a part of for so long in human history and now how we've made it something that that is really as natural as breathing, you know, you're just like being patient with it. I love how you frame that uh, to now seeing it as something that that feels unnatural or even weird. If you're saving your food scraps and stuff like that in your house and taking it out to your yard or your local composter or, you know, um, your municipality or how, whoever's, you know, offering that service um so you know i know a lot of people who seemingly know they should compost but it just feels so inconvenient and again they're they're worried about uh you know raccoons and things like that what advice would you give like for for someone there how does someone get started or what's the best way to sort of like dabble here or like you know and i know like there there there's some there's some great companies popping up as well. And, uh, you know, sounds like I'll be, I'll be hitting up your son if, if I live close to you, to you guys, but. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll have to talk about him in a couple minutes. Cause he's got this really dialed into a science and it's, it's a beautiful closed loop system that feeds the garden, like almost to the exact amount of cubic yardage. Anyhow, we can talk about him in a minute, wow. but so just in, uh, like encouragement to people that are sort of at, at the starting line, Uh, maybe a little reticent to start because there's some, you know, inhibitive factors like it's inconvenient or I might attract varmints and stuff. There's a couple misnomers I think that need to be clarified, right? One of them is this, a a compost pile, regardless of size, when properly, when, when, encouraged to do what it naturally does. And I'll explain that in just a second, what that means actually doesn't attract varmints, even in an urban environment. And I can explain that. Um, the second misnomer is that, and we talked on this earlier, but I want to say it again, because it's so important. 
a compost pile doesn't actually smell. Like it, it literally shouldn't smell. And if it does, there's really easy ways to solve that. But it just shouldn't smell. We associate it with rats and stink. And it's like, who wants to invite that, right? The third misnomer is that it's actually difficult. And we kind of addressed that at the very beginning. Like it's, it's not. Like everything you need to encourage nature to naturally decompose your waste, you literally have at your disposal like now. Like it's really not that difficult. So with those things clarified, what I would encourage is one of two things. One, and I'm thinking mostly in terms of like people that live vertically, like in an urban environment, they just don't have access to any real land, even like a little corner of a 60, you know, a 32nd of an acre or something like that. And I, and I'm encouraging this because I do it. I am the recipient of three families compost. Right. So it's very minimal, but when they come by, they actually bring it to our house and just incorporate it and into our system. And all that takes is them just collecting it. That's it. So by just taking the extra step of collecting it, they now are not sending that food into an inhabitable environment for natural life to thrive, i.e. a dump site where stuff's going to live there immemorially forever, you know? So, so that would be the first encouragement is who do you know? Like, who do you know that even has the smallest yard to where you can have a collective effort and it doesn't take that much compost breaks down like 10 to one. Like it's not like, like it won't be that big as long as it's being cared for slightly. Like it'll three families can just throw it all in and it's like would take up this little like cor- yard in the corner of their, you know, in the corner of their yard, interestingly enough. Um, the second thing I would encourage people to do that are just getting started um, is to, this is kind of cheating, yeah. use your church, right? Yes. Right? Because I, there, and there are a lot of situations where even having a friend or a loved one or a close work associate that's like actually composting on say more than a 16th of an acre and they've got it in the, like, let's like, I know that I'm privileged to have that and to know people that do that. So, and there's a lot of people that don't, but I'll tell you what, I know most churches have green spaces, right? And what an act of pure, like life-giving ministry to be the person that initiates a compost pile in the, in the corner, in the corner of, of the church property. And plus, it's like a gift to your preacher. Like they now have a like an ongoing metaphor for the re- life and re- death and resurrection, <laughs> right? Like, um, yes. So I, w- I would love, I've said many times in the past, like every church should have a farm. Every church should have a gardener on staff. Every church should have a community garden, blah, 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 right? At the very least, every church should have a compost file, right? Mm. And I'm sticking to that one. I don't care how small the church is and I don't care how small the yard they have. In general, they have some amount of green space. And so I really don't think anybody that is listening is probably without the resource of space to at least start what we're talking about, right? Um, That's so. great. That's, that is that is really helpful to think about. And, you know, if, if uh, you know, it's a challenge too. It's like if, man, if I don't if I don't know anyone with at least that much green space, maybe I, I gotta I gotta extend my community. I gotta like 
branch out my compost network here, mm-hmm. uh, get out of my comfort zone a little bit. I, mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. And I, I think that really brings it, draws it down to, and I, and I know that there are lots of people who live in, you know, obviously apartment buildings and places with, with strict HOAs and, and all that. So it does take some creativity, but this is also something that we have to start, uh, you know, reinvesting in as a society to say like, this is really important for our lives and the life of our lives of our plant life of our planet um, to make this a priority for the, the HOA, you know, it's, it's, it should be up there, but, um, and for the way we do life everywhere. Yeah. And the, you know, a lot of the restrictions on composting in metropolitan areas are, are, completely like resting on misconceptions of what compost is and what healthy waste management looks like. Right. And so, I mean, a big part of, you know, the composting journey, um, collectively speaking as like a creative community of people is like you're saying is maybe just pushing a little bit, um, to clarify some of those misunderstandings. Um, I will add this too, because I've, I've done this in the past when I've been restricted in space. Um, and when I've lived in really harsh climates where the decomposing process basically turns off for several months, like in the far north, um, we, we've done both vermiculture and soldier fly propagation. Um, well, let me say this. There, there are basically two categories of partners in the composting process. I've said the biggest thing we have to do is just stand back and wait. Well, so we add our patients. Well, there's other pe- there's other organizations that are adding all doing all the heavy lifting. And, and the way I separate those without getting totally dorky, one is things you can see and things you can't see, right? Like, like macrobiological things like worms and centipedes and beetles and right, like things you can like look at and say, that's an insect, those things. And then things you can't see that are by like the billions in the tablespoon, right? Like single cell organisms and, uh, you know, fung, you know, funguses and stuff. And anyhow, the ones you can see, some of those you can partner with in controlled systems and you can turn waste. Let's just say, a you know, uh, a, someone trying to sell you something through junk mail, an envelope and a banana, a banana peel. I kid you not. Some of those larger partners that you can see, let's say worms, can turn that into black dirt in three weeks. Like it is wow. phenomenal. And we've, I've done That's it. I've so done it at different, I've done it at different scales. I've done it in little pots, like the size, like the, you probably boil spaghetti in and I've done it in yeah. large scales and like cubic yard bins, you know, um, and it works exactly the same. We've also done soldier flies, which are even faster. Right? Oh man. It, it's phenomenal. Right. So there's really creative, like, um, ways to partner with organisms um, in ways that don't put off bad odor that are super clean and self-contained, but that's like for the real adventurous. In yeah, all reality, yeah. like finding someone with a little bit of space, the corner of your church property, pressuring the HOA a little bit, like a lot, yeah. these can go a long way in like finding a good place for you to decompose your waste. Mm, so. Man. Thank you for these words, brother. This is is this is actually like super encouraging, and I know that our listeners are going to be uh, just really uh, encouraged um, hearing all this. One one last practical question before we wrap things up: uh, What do you think about the eco products, like the quote unquote compostable silverware and and things like that? Do you do you compost any of that kind of stuff? Because I know it takes um, generally a pretty high heat. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I have, we've run a lot of tests on our property. We don't have an industrial composting system. Um, we produce three, three cubic yards a year. Um, and that is basically out of about 30 cubic yards of organic material. And that's all that toilet paper and scrap, um, junk mail and everything off the farm. Like it's 30, I mean, imagine that 30 cubic yards, one of the huge dump trucks, a full-size dump truck is basically 15 cubic yards. So two of those of just organic waste from inside our house and around our farm go breaks down into three cubic yards of finished compost annually. And that's the exact amount that we need for our garden and dressing our trees and stuff. But um, so in that system, which is like a huge home system, right? It's not commercial by any stretch. Um, We've run tests in various um, piles um, with compostable bags. Like there's the heavier duty, like kind of like mm -hmm. plastic grocery bag. Then there's the real kind of like um, flimsy thin one that you would get like organic head of broccoli in, you know, that's like kind of green tinted. Um, we've done those. We've done the forks. We've done the cups both plastic looking cups and paper looking uh -huh. cups yeah um and of all of the pro all of the compostable products the only one that has composted in our system in a year has been paper cups some mm. of those compostable products i can, i'm not even exaggerating i just got a i just gleaned a wheelbarrow full a finished compost from last year, which had a test that we ran from the previous year. So this is now over two years and it was the thinnest reuse or compostable bag, the little green one with a head, of, like a head of broccoli that you, mm -hmm. you picture it, mm -hmm. you know, the light green. And it was still intact over two mm -hmm. years later. Meanwhile, I had, it was perfectly rich black soil, but you had this bag now. So, all of that stuff, all of that compostable stuff far exceeds not like the, the true plastic and non-compostable stuff. But the caveat is, and it doesn't usually say this, sometimes it's printed on it. It requires a commercial composting system, which generally means they can control it at about 160 degrees over a long period of time, mm -hmm. right? If I ever get to 160, I would be, I'm, we are compost at the center general when it's really hot generally runs about 120 to 130 um during the warm season um and that we that's all that's maybe getting a little too scientific but the point is in a commercial system those things are very much compostable but in a home system they don't compost very well right right so great that's that's really good to know we've you know I've, we've tested some things as well and my compost i'm sure is not nearly as efficient as yours but uh, that's man. I if we could all get like ten percent of Ryan's passion toward composting, I think <laughs> like we're going places. So this is good. I, we might have to do a part two of this. You know, uh, uh, to 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 think about this. And so we're. I hear you talk about the sort of language of of composting and and talking about practicing composting and um. It just feels like I guess after this conversation like this is you know this is a material practice but this is a spiritual practice i i guess maybe a safe way to frame it as as well um 
You know, I, I realized, Caleb, at one point, I don't know, maybe five or 10 years ago, that the most critical component of the prayerful life or of a prayer was not in the words. Um, for a while, I thought it was in the silence between the words, which is important. But I realized at one point it was actually in the posture. It was there's a reason historically we kneel when we pray. It's a it's a posture of reception. It's a posture of submission. It's a posture of openness. And even with the palms up, right? Like there's a certain kinetic component to prayer without which words can become hollow. Waiting can become impatience, right? And I, and there was something that happened when I realized that. Um, that the the bowing in prayer is maybe the critical, the most critical aspect. I realized, oh my gosh, I am, I I am bent over. I'm air quoting here. I am bent over, and I'm posturing myself every time I weed my beds, and every time I wield a pitchfork and turn my compost. and And I realized, at, you know, this was pro- this was about the time we moved here and we were putting in our farm. I mean, and we and put in our entire farm without a um without a tractor right it was all manual my my boys remind me that all the time right everything we've done on our property has been manual and and it was partly because of this not that you can't be a prayerful tractor rider or something like that but i realized there's a kinetic there's an embodied component to the spiritual life without which everything else become just becomes part of the chatter right and I was with last summer, I was with a friend, a dear friend of mine, and there's there's a moment in the summer in about July where if you don't heavily weed your onion beds, they will not mature to full size and mature in a, such a way that the outer skin can dry sufficiently so they can store all winter long till the following spring to be consumed in those midwinter rich soups that start with sauteing onions and garlic. And I remember sitting there, I remember kneeling down with him and I looked up or he looked up and said, I feel like we're praying mm-hmm. when we were weeding. And it, and it dawned on me, this is to dovetail what I was just saying, it dawned on me. Prayer is fundamentally about posturing. It's about doing the types of work with our bodies that puts us in a position to receive goodness, to receive, you know, presence, to be enriched and renewed. And I cannot think, this is to affirm what you had said, I cannot think of a more holy exercise, a more prayerful practice than the turning of compost, than the feeding of the natural systems that God has already put in place that are regenerative and life-giving and literally standing back is a holy act of worship at that point. It's just really slow. Takes a while, right? And so yeah, you're right. You nailed it with the, with the spiritual practice. It is quite literally for me, in this case, composting specifically, feeding it, building it, turning it, and then gleaning it is quite literally for me, embodied spirituality. Mm, I love that. Man, it just occurred to me, you're like the Brother Lawrence of composting. You're like, there's got to be something there. Uh, man, thank you so much, Ryan. This is just 
been a treasure of a conversation. And uh, in true Southern fashion, I'm going to say it's going to bless everyone's hearts. So uh, (laughs) thank you for being with us, man. This this has been so good. Hey, it's, it's my honor. Truly, it is. Friends, thanks for listening. Consider leaving the show a review. Remember, follow us at Eco Christian Podcast. Until then.